1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Lots to talk about again today as early voting continues. We are moving toward the final day of voting, which is also called Election Day. Uh, Next Tuesday, we continue to set records with uh, turnout, mostly on the Republican uh, side. Uh, We all think because there are more hotly contested races there at the top of the ticket than on the Democratic uh, side of the uh, ballot, um, but we have a lot to talk about about state elections, and we're going to take a look at what's happening in other states uh, where primaries were held yesterday, um, and and have some uh, relationship to what's going on here in Georgia. So let's get right to it. Uh, it's Wednesday. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution, author of Flipped, and now a uh, an analyst, political analyst for uh, NBC. Uh, news on their various platforms. Greg Bluestein, how are you doing? This is an exciting time for political journalists.
2: It really is. um, Six days left. I was on the campaign trail all day yesterday. I'll be, today is more of a writing day and tomorrow I'll be back at it going uh, to Southeast Georgia. And we expect a pretty big announcement in terms of the, the economic development world on Friday down in Savannah. So I'll be there for that
1: as well. Are we talking about auto, perhaps an auto plant, Hyundai?
2: Perhaps an auto plant that has graced the AJC's front pages, so it's not like it's a secret, but it's uh, 8,500 job development (laughs) uh, that is expected to be announced on Friday.
1: Uh, That's, yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the power of incumbency just a minute from now, but uh, let me introduce the rest of the panel uh, before we do that. Uh, State Senator Kim Jackson, whose uh, district is uh, centered in Stone Mountain is uh, back with us, a Democratic State Senator and an Episcopal priest whose uh, ministry is in the homeless uh, community, which we always like to point out, Kim, because it's frankly just such a wonderful uh, way to serve in uh, in your community. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. I'm glad to be here.
1: Sure. Edward Lindsay is with us. Um, Edward is a former um, member of the State House, longtime member of the State House from uh, uh, Buckhead, uh, city of Atlanta, and now is uh, a partner and runs the Georgia Government Affairs uh, section of Denton's, Edward, <laughs> the world's largest law firm. <laughs> I'm glad you're back. We haven't talked to you for a while. I'm really glad you're back. Always delightful to be here. Thanks. Thanks so much. And Claire Sanders uh, is back with us, uh, too. Uh, Claire is a uh, uh, senior lecturer in political science and uh, public policy at uh, Georgia College State University in Milledgeville. Uh, Claire, we were talking before the show about the fact it's getting hot all over the state, but you're down there in South Georgia where things really heat up.
3: Yes, we were talking about um, the recreation baseball games are really a lot hotter this week than they were last week. They so were spending all of our nights at the ball field these days.
1: Oh Yeah, you know, uh, Lindsay and I, our children are grown and out of the house. We went through all that, but you and Greg Blustein, you're still you're still out there cheering your younger children on right now in baseball. And I think back to those days, and I wish I could say I envy you. But I'm glad we have them behind me. <laughs> All right, let's get right down to serious business. Um, Greg, we have talked on this show about the power of incumbency and how Brian Kemp has effectively used it in his campaign for reelection. I think it was Mel Brooks in The Producers who uh, had a great line in which he said, It's good to be the king. <laughs> and in Brian Kemp's case, it is good to be. The governor. Uh, just this week, he, he announced a distribution of some $415 million in federal COVID relief money. It was initially set to go out at the beginning of the year. They held it back. It's now the week before the primary election, and there's a lot of money going out to a lot of organizations from the governor. Greg?
2: Yeah, as you said, more than $400 million. And look, I mean, it's to me, it's another example of how the governor is using every lever of power he possibly can. And this goes back, and we've talked about it on this show, um, to judicial appointments that are aimed at uh, uh, you know, energizing conservatives, to, of course, the legislative session, to economic development deals. Um, and, and now, you know, we're, we're heading to the closing days of this race. On Friday, he's set to announce the biggest economic development project in Georgia history. And on Monday, he's going to be campaigning with – Donald Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, right? So these are all going for the jugular. He does not want um, any option, any sort of avenue for David Perdue to force a runoff. He's doing everything he can to get to that 50% plus one mark because he knows better than anyone else what it's like to uh, come in second place and go into the runoff uh, with Donald Trump's endorsement because he, of course, had that to his advantage back in 2018 doing the runoff against Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle.
1: Uh, Kim, I want to talk in a minute about the fact that there are some really good organizations getting uh, this money, and and we should point that out. But we should also uh, point out that uh, it's only apparently at the very, very end of the news release, according to the articles I've read, I never saw the news release myself, that the governor's office mentions, oh, by the way, this is money from the federal government. And, of course, we know that every Republican in the Georgia congressional delegation voted against distributing funds, uh, COVID relief funds, when the bill uh, came up for passage. So this was this is a largesse yes that Democrats were able to provide here in Georgia uh, and other states across the country.
0: Yeah, that's right. We have to be really mindful of the fact that Republicans in Georgia especially tried to stop this money. Um, and we also need to note that this money was supposed to be released in January. Um, so our governor waited four months to release these funds that are really crucial and really important. You know, one of the organizations that this money goes to deals directly with people who are experiencing homelessness. It's trying to prevent people from going into homelessness. So this is four months of money that could have been gone, that could have gone out to help make sure that there weren't more people living on the streets or to help get people off the streets. And the governor delayed that money in order to have this great big splash of Democratic money that we passed down to him. Uh, So we we just need to be mindful of all of the different components of this, the ways that he's using money that Republicans didn't endorse um, to celebrate his campaign, and then the ways that he delayed it um, that actually hurts Georgians.
1: Edward, the uh, governor's office would say they set up a, a process for they deciding did. where the money went. They had a committee that looked at all of this. So, I mean, they have a rationale for yeah, why did. this comes when it does. Nevertheless, the timing is fortuitous at the least. <laughs>
2: there, there, uh, yeah,
4: it, it, it is fortuitous. Uh, when you're the governor and a lot of good things are happening uh, during your administration, uh, but like before an election, uh, of course. Uh, you going to use, utilize the power of the incumbency. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of things that are going And getting back to Kim's point and, and also your point is that the governor did, uh, a, yes, this is money that came from the federal government, and there's a, quite frankly another huge package of money that's coming uh, from the federal government as well, uh, another $2.4 billion under the ARPA funds. Uh, the question is whether or not the governor is utilizing that money wisely. Uh, And uh, in Georgia's case, I think there's a good argument, quite frankly, that that he has. Uh, He set up three separate committees. Uh, He didn't just uh, rely upon his own staff, but he relied upon three separate committees to look at some critical areas of need in Georgia. And he's been very careful in terms of of giving that money out to make sure it goes to places that are worthy. Um, But, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is he, he is in the closing days of the campaign hitting all cylinders. Uh, with various constituencies uh, in the Republican primary coming up. Uh, with the business community, he's obviously got economic development. With the social conservatives, he's signing some bills that the social conservatives are, are very excited about. And when it comes to moderates, more socially moderate Republicans in the suburbs, you know, his his record over the last couple of years between signing hate crime bills and repealing uh, citizens arrest bills has appealed to them, so he's 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 doing everything he can to hit the the each uh, that which is important to various uh, constituencies in the Republican primary, uh, while at the same Claire time trying to avoid as much as he can uh, discussing Donald Trump.
1: I apologize, I uh, Edward Claire.
3: Oh, I would agree with what everybody's saying here. I think this is all about what we see in political science and politics in general, credit-taking. So um, governors, especially incumbent governors, have a record to run on. Um, this is all sort of um, the perfect storm, so to speak, of of um, in terms of timing, in terms of, you know, planning to roll these announcements out right before the primary, um, as Edward was saying, speaks to the different parts of the electorate, of his constituency, that he wants to... Um, bring this message to. It's one thing um, when we're talking about um, opposing earmarks in principle, but it's another thing to try to explain to um, your constituents that okay, we're not taking advantage of you know this this assistance that's being being offered to to our state. So um, all politics is local, and I think that the timing of this um, and the power of incumbency being able to take credit for. Um, for this relief is is just um, sort of a sweet spot that the governor is is seeing right now in his campaign. Um, that's coming to hopefully what he hopes is to a close next week.
1: Kim, I want to ask you about Democrats and the messaging around something like this um, and other issues in the news. Um, for instance, the leaked uh, opinion by Alito on a, on abortion on Roe. Um, There are some people that say, where are the Democrats? That's Gavin Newsom said that when the Alito leak happened. He said, where are Democrats fighting back on this? And and for me on this show to point out that the money that, that Kemp is distributing comes from federal funds that were voted against by all Georgia Republicans in the congressional delegation, I mean, I'm not the guy who ought to be pointing that out. And I don't feel like Democrats are doing a particularly good job Messaging on issues like this?
0: Yeah, I would actually challenge that, though. I think that Democrats have been coming out very strong um, to talk about the fact that Georgians, uh, Georgia Republicans um, tried to vote against this money, but also to reiterate that we have failed to expand Medicaid, which is a federal money that's being offered to Georgia that we've left on the table millions and millions of dollars. I mean, Stacey Abrams has done a great job of highlighting the fact that, you know, Chris Christie came down and is coming down to, to stump with, with Governor Kemp, Chris Christie, who expanded Medicaid, right? Um, and so we are pushing these issues. I mean, man, we, we pivoted it to talk about abortion to make sure that we really shored up the resources that are available today and to begin a fight um, to protect reproductive freedom and the future. So uh, I I just think you're wrong, Bill. Uh, Perhaps we may be in a little bit of an echo chamber. So maybe that's why you're not hearing us. But um, Democrats are rallied um, have rallied together and they are ready and they are fighting um, and trying to spread the message of this is this is our time. And we are passing great. um, We're doing great work on the federal level. And we are demanding better work for us on the state level.
1: You know, Kim, thank you for saying all that, because I think you make a point that I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken to some extent. Certainly on expanding Medicaid, Democrats have been very strong. Stacey Abrams has been strong. The fact that Abrams is turning now her health care message toward choice for women is also uh, very, very strong. So I, I, I think maybe you caught me out here. Uh, but I still feel, Greg, somehow that Republicans have always got away to get their message across in uh, perhaps it's more incendiary ways is what I'm thinking about
2: yeah, and look I mean it, it is it's also accurate to say that Democrats have struggled to, to to have a counter message to the rising inflation fuel prices right we, we've heard Democrats some some like Senator Warnock wants to want to suspend federal fuel tax. Um, You know, state lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans suspended the the state fuel, state sales uh, tax on on fuel. But um, we haven't heard uh, a sort of more cohesive message from Democrats overall about how to fight rising inflation and the economic uncertainty. You know, at least a unifying one that we that is you know repeatable and that is out there like Medicaid expansion. Um, And I guess, you know, the other thing I'd say is that one of the challenges with Medicaid expansion, it's been the core message of Democrats since 2014 campaign, since Jason Carter. Right. So it's not a new it doesn't mean it's not a good message for Democrats. It's just not a new one, Um, because in 2014, Jason Carter ran on a platform of expanding Medicaid in 2018. Stacey Abrams did as well in 2022. It's been one of the core issues of her campaign. This is something, though, that the, the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade does give <clears throat> Democrats. Um, we heard Stacey Abrams say it literally reshapes her campaign. Um, we've heard um, you know, Senator Warnock call himself a pro-choice pastor and at the Democratic Gala just a few nights ago made that a core part of his speech to Democrats. So it's something else that, that Democrats can rally around heading into November in, 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 a, in a new way.
4: What you, what you need to look at when it comes to what issues resonate uh, most broadly is, you know, what are those issues that impacts everyone uh, and who can you uh, lay responsibility uh, toward if there's a problem at the, at the foot of their door. And the fact of the matter is inflation is impacting everybody uh, across, all, across all the ideological lines, across all economic lines, across all demographics, every one of us is being impacted by inflation. And rightly or wrongly, um, and my friends on here who are from the Democratic side will say wrongly, but rightly or wrongly, when you control uh, the presidency and both chambers of Congress, uh, responsibility uh, for this uh, extreme spike in inflation, which we have not seen since the early 1980s, is going to be laid at the, at the feet of, uh, of the party in power uh but Bruce I mean numbers I'm sorry greg uh, raised uh, a good point about uh, uh the abortion issue, which has a direct impact obviously among uh, uh i think the last usual time it's somewhere around fifty two percent of the electorate uh and so that's one of those broad based issues that will also resonate and we'll see how it cuts in terms of the pro life versus the pro choice movement uh in november it's going to definitely play a role the question is whether or not it plays a, that bigger role as big in, a role as inflation and some of the other woes uh,
1: facing our country. Claire?
3: And I would say, too, that I think both of the parties are trying to balance, you know, what messages they're sending right now. I mean, you're in a primary season, so I think the Democrats are, are really waiting for their Republican contest to play out, especially here in Georgia, to, see, to really, you know, see what their messaging should be because your general election strategy I think if I was a Democratic strategist, I would be highlighting the issues like abortion and and those issues to sort of um, get people to the polls to vote. Um, but as um, Edward was saying, the the economic issues, you know, the Democrats also have to be able to um, figure out, okay, short-term forces, are these more important than the long-term issues? And um, like you said, when economic issues are affecting people more broadly, um, supply chain issues are affecting people broadly, you know, with the formula issues, the baby formula issues that we're seeing right now. So I think both parties are having to um, figure out a way to balance these complex um forces that we have now in terms of um, public policy.
1: I love it when people on the panel like you, Claire, just now are talking about Democrats positioning themselves for a general election and the issues they'll take up then uh, rather than spend them all right now and Kim, you're talking about how you feel Democrats have been aggressive on some big issues. Thank you. I always love it when I make uh, statements that the panel is able to say, sorry, Bill, <laughs> you got that a little wrong. So <laughs> thank you for that. Hey, Greg, let's talk a little bit about uh, the elections, particularly yesterday in uh, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Um, and, and we should do that because, of course, Greg, we know there were some uh, candidates strongly backed, by Donald Trump in those races. And it's understandable if the people on the Republican ballot here in Georgia are looking over their shoulder at those races to wonder what Trump's power continues to be. Is he still strong? So with that in mind, uh, we should say uh, that uh, Mehmet Oz, who he is endorsed for US Senate, the Republican nomination in Pennsylvania, is in a very tight race. Today, still with uh, David McCormick, uh, it's uh, I think it's like a couple of thousand votes separating them. There are still many absentee votes that need to be counted out there, so it's hard to know what Trump's imp- impact will be on that race quite yet, right, Greg?
2: Yeah, and mm-hmm. should we should we make a point that um, that in this case it's okay <laughs> to, to count ballots um, after <laughs> the election day? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The Trump-backed candidate is more than happy to count ballots after election. And a reminder, that's just part of the process. and It'll be part of the process. There'll be some ballot counting in Georgia next week after, um, uh, you know, long after the polls close. Um, But, no, it looks like a split ticket. And then we've seen some of it, you know, a a split decision for Trump. Uh, We see some victories. Um, Trump backed uh, Mastriano, the the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania, um, who rolled to victory. Uh, there's a late endorsement for him. Um, you know, he backed a, a Senate a candidate and a Republican Senate candidate in North Carolina who rolled the victory. Um, he had less luck in um, in Idaho, for instance. You know, so there's there's some instances where Donald Trump's Donald Trump's endorsement uh, weighed heavily, and there's some instances where it didn't. Um, and I imagine we're going to see a lot of the same in Georgia. Um, I don't think that his ticket will sweep, and I don't think his ticket will get demolished either. I mean, Burt Jones is looking. Real good, headed into it with an outside shot of winning an, uh, an outright victory in the, the governor's race here, and he's the Trump-backed candidate. But David Perdue, as we've talked about, is lagging far behind Governor Kemp. Um, uh, Herschel Walker is the only candidate in Georgia, who, a Republican candidate who probably didn't need anyone's endorsement to win because of his high name recognition. Um, so you know that that will go in the Trump column, but it, you know it didn't didn't necessarily. Um, you know, uh, center on Trump at all. Um, and then there's some races that I just, you know, are going to be really hard to predict, like the 10th district race um, where Vernon Jones, the former Democrat, is now backed by Trump. Um, you know, that, he, that could go into runoff, that could go into runoff without Vernon Jones. Um, according to some polls I've seen. So we just don't know. But certainly all these races, and not just last last night, but also um, previous primaries, we're all looking to, at them for indicators of how um, Trump's effect on Georgia will be. But Georgia is such a different dynamic from some of these states.
1: Yeah, I think that's really an important point. But let, let, let me uh, uh, throw this out, Claire. Um, and you can take uh, Pennsylvania as an example uh, Memedaz could end up winning that race. He may lose it to McCormick. We don't know yet. Um, but whether you had a Trump endorsement in that race or not, all of the candidates were Trumpy. Kathy Barnett, who seemed to be surging toward the end of the race but has now faded completely, m- maybe. Trumpier than Mehmet Oz himself. So you don't have to have the endorsement of Donald Trump. We're not going to tell know what the real impact of Donald Trump is on races, just whether his candidates win or lose. It's the Trumpy message that other candidates are uh, sending out that's also important to look at here.
3: No, I was going to say that too, Bill. Um, in terms of the Trump's endorsements, I think he had, what, 26 endorsements. And the majority of those um, seats that, or those candidates that Trump endorsed, I think were already pretty. Uh, the majority were pretty much safe, and so I think you're right in that maybe the, the Trump message, maybe the the support for those um, those policies, the candidate himself, are just sort of encapsulated in um, elements of the Republican
4: Party. The the, the best line I've heard uh, was from a uh, in terms of the impact of, of Trump and all of his endorsements around the company comes from a uh, a Trump supporter uh, in Savannah. It was published in the Savannah News, uh, who was not supporting the the Trump uh, candidate. And what she said was, "He's not Jesus. I don't follow blindly anybody but Jesus." Uh, And and, and that sums it up. Uh, Is Donald Trump a factor in these various races? Yes, he is. Is he enough to take someone to the uh, victory circle? Well, it depends on a lot of other factors, a lot of other local factors. Uh, Two key things that I look at. One is how well-known the candidates already are uh, uh, before Trump makes an endorsement. But you know, and number two is what kind of attributes or baggage do they bring uh, into a race? For instance, you know, in the in the case of our race here in Georgia, for the for governor, uh, you know, um, Brian Kemp and David Perdue are already very well known figures. So while Trump may have a, a small impact on that, he's not going to have as great an impact as he is on some of these down ballot races that Greg was alluding to. The second and and you know and that also goes with someone like Herschel Walker, uh, you know I you know he's already a, a rock star among a lot of the electorate in Georgia, particularly among Republican electorate in Georgia, and I'm not sure whether or not Trump had any impact really in terms of his endorsement, probably in terms of Georgia. So you know this is a Georgia uh, program. The, the race I I would look at most closely, closely is the race in um, in Idaho. Where the incumbent governor, who had a strong conservative record among Republicans, was nevertheless uh, not endorsed by Trump, instead uh, the lieutenant governor was, and he won rather handily in that race. I think that that's something that, that a lot of folks should look at when it comes to what's the likely outcome here in Georgia. One last quick point, and, and I know you want to hear from the others as well. For Trump, it's, it's not ideology in many situations. It's it's personal loyalty. Uh, You know, you spoke of uh, several of the candidates in the Pennsylvania race, you know, being more Trumpy than than the than Dr. Oz. Well, the fact of the matter is, Dr. Oz has shown greater personal fealty uh, toward Trump than the other ones. And so for in many situations for for Donald Trump, it's not so much ideology. It's 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 personal loyalty. And that's what got in Trump. Can anybody really seriously think that that he's a lineup? Uh, no. Uh, but the fact of the matter is he didn't show total fealty to Donald Trump, and that's why uh, Donald Trump is going after him.
1: Kim, last comments before we have to take a break.
0: Yeah, I think for me, the question is, how is this going to play out in the general? Uh, so if people play strongly to the Trump, uh, the Trump kind of ideology. Is the electorate, is the electorate um, going to go for that, right? Will Georgia Republicans rally around really Trumpy candidates? And uh, I don't know. I think the the question is still out on that, and so that's what I'm curious about. I am very aware that as more people learn about who Herschel Walker is, particularly his his past background around his lives, about his businesses, around his relationships with women, and the ways that he's been abusive, that people are having some more questions. Uh, and so I, I just look forward to seeing how this plays out in the general. The primary doesn't. for for Democrats,
1: the primary doesn't kind of matter right now. Um, Greg, I do want to say one more thing or ask you one more thing before we get to this break. Um, For me, this isn't just about like a scorecard. Where does Trump win? Where does he lose? It's not just as reductive as that. It's about how long will the Trump grip remain the force in the Republican Party nationally? Because as long as he is the dominant force the likelihood of our getting back to civil politics is virtually nil. So I think it's a bigger concern than just the scorecard. Yes, he won here. No, he didn't win there, right?
2: Yeah, Bill, and that's why the governor's race is so fascinating here, and that's why it's so closely watched, because you mentioned how in so many other races, candidates are just trying to out-Trump each other. The 10th race in Georgia is a great example of that. The governor's race is not, right? Because Brian Kemp is not mentioning Donald Trump's name. Only when asked, right? And he'll, he'll say, I'll never say a bad word about him or his administration. Um, but he is not running to, uh, as a Trump Republican. He is not running on a MAGA brand. He is not praising the, the president, the former president left and right. Um, he is, he's running on his own record. And, and that's what makes um, the Georgia governor's race so distinct from some of these other Trump-fueled contests around the nation.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's go to our first break of the show and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Claire Sanders, Edward Lindsay, State Senator Kim Jackson, Greg Bluestein, joined me. A couple quick notes. Uh, Number one, I love how closely people listen to the show out there. Uh, We got a message from someone who said, Mel Brooks wrote the line, it's good to be king for the movie The History of the World Part 1 in the (coughs) early 80s. Well, that's true, but he recycled it when he did the Broadway musical, The Producers, and uh, he gave the line in that uh, play himself. So we're both right on that one. The other quick note is that um, today's newsletter day at Political Rewind. Natalie Mendenhall and Sarah Callis have done a great job uh, gathering good stories for you to uh, be able to uh, read in terms of what's happening in politics this week. And I added a blog um, from our conversation with David Gergen the other day, one of the saddest things I think Gergen writes about in a brand new book that we talked about on this show is he says, "I think there are we can't find men and women of greatness in America today," and and to me that was very sad. And so I, he's talking about in the political arena. And so I suggest in the uh, blog that I wrote for the n- newsletter, there are other areas we can look to where there are people of greatness, and I just point to one of them who I think is an example of that. You may have others, so read the newsletter. Subscribe to it at gpb.org newsletters, and when you see the choice I've made, send me a note, tweet it to Niget B., or email me at gpb.org. Give me your examples of who the real people are of greatness in this country today, whether they're in the political arena or not. Okay, Greg Bluestein, where the heck is David Perdue? He's not on TV and he's making very few public appearances.
2: Yeah, we had a fun little item about that in the Jolt um, in the morning newsletter um, at the AGC on Tuesday. And, you know, we we were looking for him over the weekend. He had one um, quietish event uh, down near the coast in Chatham County, um, but he was absent from digital media. He was absent from social media. Um, he's off the airwaves. Um, there's an outside group with a little money behind him, but he is not meaningfully pumping um, out TV ads or radio ads or digital ads. Um, and his campaign has gone somewhat quiet. Uh, shortly after we posted that he only had three events um, lined up for the week, his, his campaign added about four or five or six more. Um, so now he has some more events, but most of them are, are kind of piggybacking off of existing um, Republican gatherings around the state. Um, and it, I think it speaks to just the challenges he's facing. Um, the, the, and meanwhile, the governor, who's in pole position right now, um, he's, he's scheduled something like 16 events. Um, so he's putting his foot on the gas right now with a bunch of events, a bunch of announcements. There's still um, official announcements such as the Hyundai deal that we talked about earlier that will probably be announced scheduled to be announced on Friday. Um, and, and Purdue um, is not countering with his own forceful, aggressive um, response right now.
1: All right. Um, well, we're going to watch the governor's race in the days ahead, obviously. Um, but I'd like to move on to um, uh, another subject. Um, uh, Kim Jackson, I'd, I'd, I'd like to start with you on this one. Um, President Biden went to Buffalo yesterday uh, to offer his condolences to the, to the families and friends of those who lost uh, uh, loved ones, the 10 people murdered in that horrific hate crime uh, in the Buffalo supermarket, and he made a powerful uh, statement about hate will not prevail. He called out white supremacy. He called out racism uh, specifically. Um, give us your take on all of this. Let's let's talk about this just a little bit here.
0: Yeah, I was really grateful to hear the president be so clear and unequivocating about uh, the importance of stamping out white supremacy in our nation. Um, You know, this has been, as an African-American watching um, the scenes from Buffalo and and thinking about um, what it means to be targeted because of race still in 2022, um, it's heartbreaking and and really not, I think, even the America that my grandparents dreamed of for me. Uh, And so I'm really grateful for a president who's standing up and, and calling for us to to make some changes. Um, but I, I really am looking forward to and hoping to hear from um, some conservatives who will speak up and denounce behavior as well, who will stand up and denounce the ideologies that were behind this attack. Um, you know, President Biden speaking is great, but what we need to hear is more white men who are conservatives, um, who may more re- better relate to the type of people who are attracted to these de- ideologies. We need to hear them stand up and speak out against it.
1: Edward, it feels like Republicans are having some trouble trying to figure out how to counter the Tucker Carlson's of uh, uh, Fox News and others who promote the replacement theory, this notion that Democrats are trying to bring non-citizens in, people of color, uh, to become the dominant voters in the country, to give Democrats control of the reins of power, and we're not here, and we're hearing that now from people like Elise Stefanik in uh, the U.S. House, a uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, as well, and and other Republican leaders are not really uh, calling them out.
2: Well,
4: well, many of us are calling them out. Uh, let me make sure that that you do understand that, and to sort of echo what um, what was said a moment ago by Kim, is that this is not an ideological issue. This is an issue of mm-hmm. of going after hate. Um, from a personal standpoint, I remember the hubris of my graduating class, which you know I started off in a fully segregated school system garden and graduated in a fully integrated uh, class from high school. And I do remember the hubris that we had uh, across the racial lines. And we we thought we were going to be the generation to put an end to this, Uh, that we were going to be the last generation that we had to look back upon our parents and say, okay, we love you, but you were wrong," and we're going to make a better world, and and our children are going to enter into a better world. I think in many respects they have, our children have but the incidents in Buffalo as well as the incidents in Pittsburgh and, and unfortunately, numerous, too many other numerous places around the country to mention tells us that we are still far short of that dream that Martin Luther King mentioned. And, and I think that the way to respond to that, uh, whether it be any type of personality that's a or politician that's espousing, is to say no, uh, that, uh, that we have some differences in our society. Uh, we have some ideological differences on how to get to a better world uh what's the best pathway but uh, uh when it comes to marginalizing people uh taking away their full humanity uh in the way that this uh very sick young man did uh and too many other sick people do as well is is we got to stand together uh and uh we got to sometimes listen to our priest <laughs> uh like him who articulated it so well
1: whoever,
3: yes, yes, I think the the parties the we all have a responsibility, and yes, we have our policy differences, but we should all be united in condemning this this tragedy, just that's far too common, um, and I'm at a loss for words to even you know i don't won't even try to attempt to put it into words um. Um, in terms of the grief and and sorrow that um, that our nation that that community is feeling right now, but in in terms of politics, I found it interesting that the president um, sort of put at the forefront this sort of conversation starter about where we are, and he brought up like replacement ideology, um, and then sort of uh, another point, but sort of in the background was um, sort of policy, you know, in terms of okay, well, there may be some executive action taken in regards to things like um, gun control, but um, he even acknowledged that that wasn't really going to be a reality in terms of any sort of major policy changes. So I found it interesting that um, the president's speech sort of presented um, this as sort of a national conversation to be had, um, rather than focusing on specific policies that Need to be addressed,
1: Greg.
2: Yeah, and he had to do that because he knows he doesn't have the votes in in Congress. Um, You know, especially with the sixty-vote threshold in in the U.S. Senate, there 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 has to be tremendous political will uh, to change gun laws um, on a federal level to to tackle some of these debates. Um, But what we are hearing, and we're hearing it in Georgia as well, is we're hearing echoes of replacement theory. We're hearing echoes. Of you know they're coming to you know change our values they're coming to they you know the if the, they and um, and it's incumbent upon uh, as as everyone here mentioned it's incumbent mm-hmm. upon um, lawmakers and figures from both parties to to call that out when they see it.
0: Yeah, I Kim. think the other piece. The other piece to note, I think that we see this in President Biden's comments is that we are coming to recognize that this has to be a multi-pronged um, process to address. So, gun control alone is not going to end mass shootings. Um, expanding access to mental health care alone will not end mass shootings. I mean, there's a whole um, multi multiple pieces that have to be addressed including um, talking about the ways that replacement uh, theory has infiltrated the Republican Party and must be rooted out, um, but also talking about the importance of really changing hearts and helping people to see that um, we are all a part of this United States of America. We are all welcome as a part of the fabric of our nation, and uh, that that's got to be kind of Something that we embrace as a nation, but I think that's what we heard mostly in Biden's speech. though, is that there just isn't one simple policy solution that is going to end mass shootings? It has to be a multi
1: attack.
4: You know, if if I um, may, bail real briefly. You know, replacement theory is the latest sick ideology uh, that is that we've seen, but but it's not new. I mean, we saw it. Obviously, uh, uh, during the fight over slavery, over uh, 150 years ago, we saw it in the nativist attitude toward uh, immigration during the height of the uh, of immigration in the late 19th and early 20th century. We saw the exact same thing, and now we're seeing it again. This is one of these ogres uh, that keeps cropping back up and uh, and and raising its head anytime. Some people, uh, for some reason, feel threatened and want to point the blame at somebody else, as wrongly as it may be. And it's something that we've all got to attack. And we've got to attack any individual that's proposing it. Uh, this is a sort of hatred that that, that is, um, you know, watts our nation at its core. And, and we, we simply all must continue to push back on it and push back on any individual, uh, whether it be a TV commentator or a politician or anyone else. Uh, that wants to espouse it.
1: Um, Greg, uh, before we take our break, it it does seem worth noting, as so many people have already, uh, that the level of cynicism, uh, uh, commercial cynicism, uh, at Fox News is extraordinary right now. Tucker Carlson is the single most popular personality on cable television and he has, I think, by one count, talked about the evil replacement theory something like four hundred times uh, in uh, past months and up until uh, today. And yet, he's uh, free to continue doing it as, as much as he wants to. I mean, at a certain point, how do we hold how do we hold people like that accountable?
2: That's a great question. Um, and, you know, uh, there's been talks of corporate boycotts. You know, there's been co- talks of of, of um, other sort of economic pushback. But, um, you know, you're all sort of protected by free speech. So it's it's a very tricky dilemma. Um, but when you have one of the most powerful networks in, in, in the, on the planet and one of the most powerful TV hosts on the planet, um, not only talking about replacement theory, but kind of sneering at, at anyone who, who who points that out, right? The New York Times wrote this uh, fantastic package of stories about Tucker Carlson and his response is basically to stand in front of the paper smiling and, t- and tweeting about it. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the media's biggest challenges right now.
1: Claire, he's become our day's Father Coughlin. Father Coughlin, the radio personality who preached uh, 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 very, very hateful, hostile messages, nativist messages in the late 30s, uh, was an isolationist, and had a great grip on many people in America because of his radio show. Carlson is the Coughlin of our day.
3: Well, again, I just, I look at where we are in terms of the media, and I know Greg can speak to this better than I can in terms of um, all, um, mass communications, but I think in terms of our saturation information the internet i'm just i know this sounds cliche but i think we've lost even though the internet's supposed to sort of open up information and open up access and and be better for democracy i think we've we've lost some of our accountability um in terms of being um to to in how we communicate with each other and how uh, our civil our civilized nature our um sort of human Interactions, right? So I think it's just in, indicative of where we are in terms of um, just the lack of accountability that we have in um, in some aspects of journalism, and some aspects of um, the internet, and some aspects of just our communications in general.
0: Yeah, I just want to say that um, this is this shooting. Let's have it. it took place about from an 18-year-old. This was an 18-year-old who ostensibly was educated in, in local schools. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think so many people were um, very adamant about the importance of not changing our curriculum when it comes to telling the truth about our history and our past as it relates to race. Um, one of the most important, I think, fundamental key pieces of why knowing our history is helpful is it helps us to not repeat the sins of the past. And so, you know, there was a lot of people couldn't understand why we fought so hard against um you know, bans against critical race theory, which of course it wasn't critical race, but why we fought so hard against the divisive concept bill, it was because we know that if we don't teach young people about the sins of a past, if we don't teach young people about the segregationists, theologies and ideologies that we've had as a nation, that we are bound to repeat them. And so I just want to name that, that that is a part of one of the issues that we've got to wrestle with, is we've got to make sure that we are providing a holistic education in history to our teachers and to our children in our schools.
1: Kim Jackson gets final word, uh, and and appreciate those words, Kim, before we take our final break of the show. We'll be back to wrap things up in just a minute. Greg Bluestein, uh, this is the last time we'll be uh, talking to you on Political Rewind until the day after uh, the primary election, which takes place finally next uh, Tuesday. Um, and by the way, I want to start talking about this now. Next Wednesday, you all know out there that we do our our show live at nine in the morning and then repeat it at two in the afternoon. Next Wednesday, we'll be doing it live both times because results may may be coming in throughout the day on Wednesday, and we want to make sure we're on top of what's uh, happening. But Greg, what I started to uh, ask you is, um, so what are you going to watch most closely, do you imagine, in the days ahead? What are the stories that are of most interest to you right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll be at Brian Kemp's watch party. I, he's the story um, runoff or route, you know, whatever the story, whatever happens in that race, I think it's, it's the local story, the national story. Um, you know, we'll also be closely monitoring the Herschel. Walker's fate, Um, you know, if it's a closer than expected uh, victory or if it's a route as well in that one, or if, you know, there's a surprise and and he's forced into a runoff. Um, But really, you know, I'm I'm really fascinated by the Secretary of State's race and some of these other down ticket races on the Republican and Democratic side. On the Democratic side, there's so many unknowns. There's such high levels of of uncertainty of undecided voters and, and these very important races like Lieutenant Governor and Secretary of State and Labor Commissioner, um, you name it. Um, and the Republican side, we, there's, a, there's a little bit more solid polling because there's just a lot more money involved in those races. Um, and I'll be looking to see, um, for instance, if Burt Jones um, can can uh, land a knockout blow and win Lieutenant Governor's race on the Republican side outright, um, and also these congressional ca- uh, campaigns. Will Vernon Jones' Trump-backed campaign, will he make it into a runoff Um you know,
1: some of these other contests are going to be really, really interesting. Um, uh, I want to give you each of you at least a moment on that. Claire, uh, pick a race or two that you think are, you're going to be most interested in watching.
3: Well, I'm definitely interested in the governor's race and the secretary of state race, um, just in terms on the Republican side, just because um, I'm even more interested in what the status of the Republican Party will be in terms of unity after this this primary. And so I'm looking for things like, um, will Kemp be, Governor Kemp be the unifying force of the Republican Party, which is a really interesting question. If you had asked that a few months ago, you know, right after the 2020 election, um, he was very divisive. So um, I'm really interested to see what the future of the Republican Party is in terms of party unity.
1: Kim, the Democrats have not gotten as much attention because of all the races that are uh, on the Republican side, the top races uh, that are so competitive. Uh, so what are you looking to see for the Democrats coming out of primary uh, night?
0: Yeah, so I'll be watching the Carolyn Bordeaux-Lucy McBath race uh, to see what the outcome of that is. It's a very <laughs> interesting um, fight here to, to see kind of how that um falls out. And then our lieutenant governor's ticket is packed. I think there are nine different candidates. And so um, to see kind of how that plays out and if it's going to be, you know, Burt Jones or Butch Miller on the Republican side, or if it's going to be one of the nine um, on, on the Democratic side, um, I'm just I'm excited to see who is going to be on the top of the ticket with Stacey Abrams okay. um, in that race.
1: Thank you. And Edward, you get the final word as we run out of time.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, you know, the lieutenant governor's race is going to be interesting, as, as Greg alluded to it. Secretary of State's race is going to be extremely interesting because if there's one individual that has had the full wrath of uh, Donald Trump, it's Brad Raffensperger. If he makes it into a runoff, that in and of itself will be a victory for him. Uh, on the Republican side, two congressional races will also be interesting. One will be the 10th. And the other one will be the sixth. Um, you know, who makes the runoff in the in, in both of these races? In the 10th in particular, you know, we talked about the impact of Donald Trump. If Vernon Jones gets it in the runoff, that, that shows his impact. The sixth is also going to be very interesting to see whether or not the
1: right. Trump's a point. Please. Edward Lindsay, always a pleasure to have you here with us. Claire Sanders, thank you so much. We look forward to having you come back and Senator Kim Jackson as well, Um, your voice is always, always a powerful one on this show. Greg Bluestein, thank you, of course, for being our Wednesday partner on Political Rewind. I look forward to talking to you next week when we'll have a pretty good sense of how all of these races have played out. That's it for us today. We're back with a new show uh, tomorrow. Mark Nisi from the AJC will be here. He's done a great job keeping on top of the election as it's unfolded. He's going to talk about that with us and much more. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigut. Please take care. Stay healthy. See you tomorrow.